Thank you for listening to the following sermon from Pine Grove Community Church in Rylander, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit us at pinegrove-wi.com. We hope you enjoy the sermon. If you please turn with me to Psalm number 38. Psalm number 38. Today's title is True Repentance, or if you want a longer title, A Biblical Portrait of True Repentance. And the reason for the title is that there is, in my estimation, very little biblical understanding of what repentance is today, the process of it, what all is involved in uh, a deep introspection into your heart, and very little has been taught and therefore understood regarding what true repentance really is in the Western church, and I just mean generally speaking, in America. So I know I'm speaking broadly, but I believe it is largely true, and the text set before us today It is a very difficult text, so I'll contend that with you. It's a very difficult text, not necessarily difficult to understand, but it's probably more difficult to fully digest, difficult to lean into, difficult to actually put into practice in your life. The reason being, I believe, is we live in a day and age where, one, people naturally recoil from hardship. They recoil from hard things. They push back from difficulty. And will do anything to avoid hard subjects or difficult, shameful subjects, especially in regards to one's personal failures, personal sins. It's not fun to divulge that, to confess that, to get a sister or brother and confess those things. It's humiliating. And number two, people will think, I think the reason they don't do this is they think that they're, they're alone in their struggle with sin. They're alone in their struggle with sin. They're the only ones who have this issue or that issue. No one else has done what I've done. This is what the devil starts to get you to think. And so then it makes it difficult to, uh, to deal with that. And the truth is, everyone battles with what theologians call indwelling sin. We'll talk more about that later today, but it's called indwelling sin. It's the sin that, as a believer, you do continue to struggle with. So we're not talking about original sin or those sins before justification, but as believers, we all do still battle in our flesh. And this aspect of of doctrine or teaching of the Scriptures is is often not talked about much because it is difficult to to put into your life. It's difficult to practice. And the scriptures actually tell us that God is honored with a broken and a contrite heart. He's honored with humility and honesty. And so we find the subject matter at hand today to be a very shameful and uncomfortable subject. This is why people who want to avoid this kind of difficulty, they're often sarcastic people. They use that as a wall to hide behind. Or they they laugh about everything. They try to lighten everything. When in fact, certain aspects of life are meant to be heavy. And the subject of sin, repentance, and confession is not an easy thing. So brothers and sisters, I'm going to ask you to patiently Work hard at journeying through this passage with me today. 
through this weighty and dark subject of sin and its consequences in the way to godly repentance. The passage is hard, and just like Frodo deciding to go through the mountain instead of over it or around it or trying to avoid it or skirt it, I ask you to go through it with me today. Go through these hard things. Journey through this this difficulty that we find here in Psalm 38, and I pray that your heart will be captured by this truth, because if you will go through that truth, you will find all the more freedom in Christ. It's there for you now as a believer. I'm not denying that, but you will find more fully the freedom of his forgiveness when you feel the weight of what he freed you from. And so through this sermon, we're going to pause, we're going to ask questions, make applications, so you can go through into those dark corners of your heart and assess whether or not you may be in need of repenting over some things that maybe have become permanent fixtures in your your, uh, heart and in your private life. Or maybe God will reveal things to you. Reveal some things to you that you did not realize were there all along. So this psalm, Psalm 38, is what's called a lament psalm. It's a psalm of penitence or repentance. The psalmist is overwhelmed here with feelings of guilt, feelings of shame, inner angst and turmoil, to the point that it even affected his physical body. He was physically sick because of what he had done. And I might add that this is pleasing to God. He wants a broken and a contrite heart. And here he is begging God for that renewed fellowship that was broken, and he knows it was due to his sin. It was sin against a holy God. And in another chapter, he says, Against you and you alone have I sinned. He was living before the face of God. And because of his sin, he is so grieved that he is literally physically debilitated over his sin. God is disciplining him. God is disciplining the psalmist David. He feels the weighty hand of God upon him, which is driving David. And this is the important part that I really want you to get one thing today. Where did he run? He ran to God. He didn't go and hide. He didn't recoil. He ran to God. We sang about that this morning. I run to Christ. Run to the Redeemer. Run to the one that forgives you. So David runs to God. He's not recoiling. He is waiting for God to finish his discipline. He's accepting it. He doesn't like it. He's crying out, but he's accepting it. And he's looking forward all the meanwhile to reconciling grace. And that's the climax of the passage that we'll read in just a minute. So Psalm 38 deals with the themes of sin and its consequences, guilt, judgment, and finally and most importantly, to put our hope, our final hope in God's salvation by grace alone. So the consequences of sin is also a pervasive theme in this passage. We will see that sickness in this case, as a result of sin in David's life. And so I need to pause to, to make one concession and make one thing clear, though, before we read this. One consequence of sin in a believer's life could be, and notice I said the word could be, could be physical sickness. But hear me correctly, not all physical sickness is due to a direct consequence of indwelling sin in a believer. So, 
just because you're sick doesn't mean that, that, that it's a direct consequence to sin in your life. We see over and over in the Bible, godly believers suffer, right? Job is a prime example of someone who feared God and he hated evil. The King James Bible says that Job feared God and eschewed evil, okay? He was a godly man. He suffered greatly. He lost everything. He lost all his health. He lost his finances. He lost his children. He lost his livestock. He lost his friends. His own wife told him, curse God and die. And what was his response to all of this? I think it's Job 38 or 39. I forget which. He says, though you slay me, I will not deny your name. And then he shut his mouth and listened to God. Right? Not all sickness or trial or difficulty is due directly to your sin. But in this psalm, the sickness is a disciplining consequence upon David. And the main point in this passage is not that David is sick because of sin, but rather this. How does David deal with his sin? That's the main point. How do you deal with it? So let's read Psalm 38, and then we'll pray, and then go section by section. Do not forsake me, O Lord, a psalm of David for the memorial offering. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. In the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all the day long. But I am like a deaf man. I do not hear. Like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me, who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall. (coughs) Excuse me. And my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous. They are mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would open wide our minds and hearts to receive the depth and the weight of this truth that is so necessary for godly sanctification. 
I pray, Father, for a church to be shaped, this church to be shaped by a biblical understanding that sanctification requires ongoing repentance through life. May we not forsake that godly grace that you give us, the gift of repentance. May we use it and wield it carefully according to your word and by the power of the Spirit. Not in order to receive more favor from you, but to simply live a life like this in thanks to you for all that you are in light of your character and who you are as a holy God. Make us a holy people for your name's sake and for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the first four verses, one through four, we see a prayer for reconciliation. When there is sin, it breaches fellowship. When we sin against God, he is our father and he loves you, but fellowship is strained. It frays it. It it affects it. And here David right away begins the psalm bearing the discipline, desiring and pleading to be reconciled to God. He's still his father. He didn't lose his salvation, right? This, this is what it is to be a Christian. When you sin, you confess. And so David is desiring for that relationship to go back to the way it was and desires to improve and to move forward with God. So we know that sin has consequences. That's what this is all about. Sin has consequences. It breaches friendships. It strains relationships. When we sin, we can use this analogy, our sin splashes on all those around us. And it hurts most deeply those closest to us, doesn't it? Strains fellowship. It causes rifts. It separates. Here we see that David's relationship with God is strained. He desires to be reconciled. And we're going to see today that part of reconciling, you can't be reconciled unless you repent first. You can't. If there is not an owning up to what was done and feeling the weight of what was done and the extent of it and taking ownership for it, there can be no full reconciliation. Can you still be a believer and go to heaven? If you're justified? Did you lose salvation because you sinned? No. But it still strains your relationship, doesn't it? And so he's crying out to God here in the first four verses regarding suffering. He knows it is due to his sin. He knows that he deserves the discipline and the full weight of God's wrath, and that is what is needed for him. And he does ask God to rebuke him, but how? Not in anger, right? Rebuke me, not in anger. He says, discipline me, but how? He says, discipline me in your wrath. He has received arrows from God. He has received a heavy hand of God upon him. He is feeling the weight of his guilt. And folks, let me say something. That's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. When we sin, when you sin, when I sin, should we feel guilt and shame for a time? Not saying stay there, okay? You read the rest of the passage. He moves to God. 
But there's a time of working through what you have done. Should that guilt be a heavy burden for a time? Definitely. Because it, it's from God's hand. It's supposed to be that way. We'll see later today that through that, what matters is what we do with our guilt. And so when we're working with people here in this church who are struggling with guilt and sin, what we'll talk to them about, it's not necessarily pouring all our weight and time into what you've done, but excuse me, what you did, but what do you do with it now? What do you do now? You can't go back and undo that, but you have to deal with what you've done correctly. And that's what the psalm is today. So notice, does it cause us to run to God and to Christ in the Spirit, or does your sin cause you to recoil and go and hide like Adam and Eve tried to do? Guilt should cause us to run to grace and then to gratitude. But if you don't deal with that guilt, you'll never understand grace fully as you could. You'll never get to the gratitude. The whole Heidelberg Catechism is set up that way. From guilt, it starts there. You deal with it. Then you move to grace. Then you move to gratitude. That is the psalm. But we've got to go through these stages. So in verse, in the first two verses, we see God's anger went deep into David's heart. It brought him down where he was supposed to be. In 3 and 4, we see the intensity of this discipline was enough to take away some things, to take away David's capacity, full capacity to enjoy life. There was not a part of his being that was not affected. His health was affected greatly. It says here, my bones have no soundness. Let's unpack what that means here. It carries the idea that there was, there was no inner peace in his life. There was no enjoyment of the things that he used to enjoy doing. I imagine David David was a musician too, wasn't he? In addition to being a king and a warrior and a theologian. He probably didn't really enjoy playing the harp as much. He was depressed. A sign of depression is that there's no enjoyment any longer in the things that used to cause joy. Please note with me that the psalmist is not questioning God's justice. He is crying out over the discipline. It is severe and it is warranted. He has reached a breaking point. And God is gracious when we are walking in sin to bring us to breaking points. It's his kindness to do that. He is overwhelmed. He says in Psalm 18, he's overwhelmed like a flood. So here's some application. What does David do about this? What should you and I do about discipline when God brings it in our life. He lifts himself up to the Lord in repentance, in a broken and a contrite heart, in a contrite prayer, and he asks for relief, he asks for compassion, and he asks for reconciliation. So same thing, what do you do when you sin? Is this what you do? Do you bear the full weight of it? Do you accept it? Do you understand that it is warranted when God disciplines you? Or do you do what most people do, like I do at times? Do you minimize it out of embarrassment? Do you act like, "Ah, I didn't really mean to? Sometimes Claire will do something at the house. You say, well, I didn't mean to. You laugh, but you probably do the same thing sometimes. I didn't mean to. Do you deny it? 
Do you seek to hide it? Do you excuse it? Probably every one of those things are done by all of us at times because we're proud. We're proud. Do we realize that God hates the proud? He hates pride. When we lie, do we not realize that God hates lying? When we lust for somebody, do we realize that you're committing adultery in your heart? Do you see sin God's way? Do you own up to it to that extent? And then do we admit it and do we confess it and accept the consequences and run to God our Father for forgiveness, relief, compassion, and reconciliation? More on this later, but I think that is the problem. We don't have a good understanding of what sin even is and how serious it is. A, a book that I'm currently reading right now on the doctrine of sin or what the Bible teaches about what sin is, is a book called Knowing Sin by Mark Jones, Seeing a Neglected Doctrine Through the Eyes of a Puritan. He's co-authored some books with Joel Beakey out of Puritan Reform Seminary. So obviously he's studying the Puritans on this. The Puritans had a great understanding of the love and the grace and the beauty of God, but also the extent of sin. They wrote extensively on this subject. But I think if we realized how serious sin is, we would fight it a lot harder. Like we're supposed to. We sure see sin in other people's lives. But we ought to be harder on ourselves than on other people. David here is not blame shifting. He's not minimizing. He is dealing with it head on like we should before the face of God. A holy God. And then in verses 5 through 12. We see more of David's pain and anguish. And so side note, before we continue, if you're wondering today how a loving God can discipline, let's be reminded that our Heavenly Father, it says, disciplines those that He loves. You can look that up in Hebrews 12, 6. Our Father disciplines those that He loves. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons and daughters. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which you have all participated, then you are illegitimate children, not sons. That is true fatherly love right there. So true love does not allow for harmful behaviors to continue to grow and manifest in the lives of those whom they love, their object of love. They will, after a time of patterns of sin are emerging, they will approach that person and bring loving confrontation, won't they? Here the Heavenly Father allows and brings pain into David's life to correct him, to make straight that which is crooked, so that he will change, he will repent and return to God the Father. You can't walk with God and walk in sin simultaneously. You cannot. We as believers have what's called indwelling sin, as I mentioned earlier. This is sin that we continue to battle with as believers. We are saved and sanctified, and yet we will still battle our own sin. Our Heavenly Father brings loving discipline in many ways to bring us to repentance. Here for David, the consequences of sin is affecting his whole being. So we have 5 through 12. And 5 through 8, again, no part of his body is exempt from this pain and suffering. 
It's causing him to reflect on his sin. And the anguish is so overwhelming that he's aching all over. But let me say this. The physical effects of his sin is dwarfed by the anguish within his soul. Verses 6 through 7, we see that. All joy of life is far from him. He's despairing. It's, he has paralyzing depression that prevents him from doing anything but groan within himself. As we see in verse 8, he's groaning over this. He groans to God. So let me ask you this. When was the last time that you actually groaned to God over ongoing sin in your life? When you see the holiness of God, the cost of making things right through the blood of His Son, our Lord, on the cross to cover our sins, when you think of the gospel of Jesus Christ and then you look at that sin that you just committed, that He died and rose to free you from, do you groan? Let me ask you this, when was the last time you dropped one tear, maybe over ongoing pornography? Or are you numb? That's a scary place to be. Does it bring you anguish of soul? A godly, upright person who loves God and knows the gospel and is his child, that is what he does. He groans. It breaks him. This is a picture of true biblical repentance. Biblical confession. This is your picture here, folks. This, folks, is what is proper worship. God is good. We are not. Only through Christ are we made right. But we are in this weird time of, I'm justified, yes, but I am being sanctified. I am being sanctified. And one day will be glorified. And the sanctification and battling of indwelling sin is the very life of every believer. Battling sin. Full of ups and downs. This is what we see with Paul in Romans uh, 7 through 8. You remember that passage? Those things that I don't want to do, I'm finding myself doing. Right? Those things that I want to do, I don't do. Sins of omission and commission. That's struggle goes on all the time, doesn't it? And what does he say? Which is the cry of the believer. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who can save me from this body of death? And then he says what? He runs to God, but thanks be to God, right? That's the ups and downs of the Christian life. This is a Christian life of it's, it's a life of war. So are we engaged in a most desperate battle against ourselves? Are we battling ourselves? Are you battling that enemy within you? The dying to self, is it a daily thing? Are you engaged? Are you groaning over your pride? Are you groaning over idolatry? Are you groaning over envy? Does it frustrate you? Men, do you groan that you don't love your wife as Christ does the church? Does that cause you pain that you don't love her like you're supposed to? Women, do you groan that you maybe don't respect your husband like you ought? Children, do you groan that you have a bad attitude towards your parents? Do you realize how dangerous that is? And the scripture is what it talks about with disobedient children. You should groan over that. Your journey starts now. Do you groan over your lack of love and understanding and care for others? 
Do you realize that if you're not being disciplined for sin, also, that you are in a most dangerous place if you're not groaning? Something's wrong. David has a longing and a desire to be made right with God and wants his heart to be made right and to follow after God. Again, he did not lose his salvation. He is justified, and that's why he's running to God and groaning. David belongs to God. This, is a, this discipline is a sign that David belongs to God. But we also see in this passage, it says here, he has some poetic language that his light had gone out from his eye. Do you see that? Here in this passage, his light had gone out. This, this is language that's basically saying it's affecting the way he's thinking. He's not thinking clearly as he could. He's not thinking as, as properly as he ought. He wants to think correctly again. Sin affects one's ability to assess and think straight. So the sin not only affected his relationship with God, that vertical relationship, it, it also, we're going to see here later, re- affected his relationship with other people. His sin splashed on all those around him. It affects everyone. It affected his ability to think straight. It affected everything in his life. So if you're here today and you think, my sin is not affecting me, it's not affecting my husband or wife or children, or my girlfriend or boyfriend, if you're dating, okay? It's not affecting my relationships at church. If you think that's the case, it affects everything around you. It affects all your relationships horizontally and, excuse me, horizontally and vertically. So in 11 and 12, because David had sinned, others did not want to be around him. This vertical affects the horizontal, his relationship with others. Our sin splashes on all those we love. It affects everyone. And so the fact that others wanted nothing to do with him, this is not a primer on how to treat others in sin, but this is just a fact that it's going to affect, Right? It's a testimony to that fact that when someone sins, it strains the relationships. He was shunned by friends, and, uh, and people wanted nothing to do with him. And so let me just go back here a little bit into David's life, the psalmist. Think about this if, if you're like, well, it shouldn't affect the way we treat others. It's going to. David bedded another woman and then had her husband killed. Do you recall that? He's the one who wrote this. Think about that. He bedded another woman and then had her husband killed. Do you think you would think twice about being friends with that guy? Do you think, do you, it affected his relationships, didn't it? It's going to. Do you think he had to spend some time rebuilding trust? Right? You lose trust. That's just the common consequence that we're reading about here. He was shunned by friends. And his enemies, they turned the dial up, didn't they? And that was unjust. That, that was wrong. Okay, But again, consequences. They were seeking his utter ruin. They were lying about him. His friends were afraid to associate with him. And then in verses 13 through 16, though, this is proper. What does David do again? Yeah, he's complaining, but he's complaining to God. If you're going to complain, complain to who? Run to God. And in 13 through 16, we have a prayer for vindication. 
He realizes before God that he's completely helpless. He needs God to act. This is where he should be, helpless. This is where God wants us, helpless. He uses language to basically state that he can do nothing, he can see nothing, he can say nothing in 13 through 16. That will help the situation. You ever been there before? There's nothing I can say, there's nothing I can do, and God's going, good, now you get it. Let me work in your life now. So he uses this poetic language to describe that he's basically numb. He's totally helpless. He's dependent on God. And therein lies the key, folks. God wants you to realize the extent of your helplessness so that he will work on your behalf. That is grace. So David is lonely. He's isolated. He's depressed. He has no reply. He has no words by verse 16. He is failing He has no words or interest in defending his innocence here. He knows that he has sinned, and he is waiting for God to move and God to act. And what is God really good at doing when you ask him to? God is really good at moving and acting and redeeming those situations that seem so helpless, even if you're the one that caused it. God is gracious. We see here that even in the darkest of moments, though, there is a glimmer of light born out of a faith given as a gift from God to him. The psalmist still calls God, Lord, my God. The psalmist who has sinned greatly still calls God the ruler of the universe, my God. He's clinging to God. And folks, that is your hope today. If if you're in the middle of battling ongoing sin for a long time, yes, you need to feel the weight. You need to feel God's discipline. But you need to run to God. Ask Him to move on your behalf, to forgive you, to reconcile Himself to you. And don't stop calling Him my God. He is your God. That is your hope. In verse 16, the psalmist has no help left other than waiting for the Lord. While he's suffering the pain of his own guilt and sin, he's battling the pain of injustice as well. So he feels like the walls are crashing down around him. Everything in life is a wreck. Ever been there? You feel the walls crashing around you? Walls closing in on you? Things feel so hopeless? You have your own mess-ups to deal with, then your kids' mess-ups to deal with, then your spouse's mess-ups to deal with, all these situations at work that you're dealing with, on and on it goes, the consequences of your own sin, their sin, you're just trying to get through day by day, and your joy is gone, maybe your happiness is gone, you feel like there's no hope, but you, uh, but you turn to God. Don't you? You ought to. David writes some more in 17 through 20 about that pain of injustice that he's also dealing with then, his enemies too on top of this. Maybe God is allowing that pain to come in to further bring more consequence upon him, to push him further to Christ and closer to Christ. So number one, we see in verses 17 through 20, David is concerned with the glory of God here on earth. So with his enemies, it's not so much about him But we see the right responses. He's concerned about the glory of God. David is concerned that the enemies uh, will maybe take away from that. David's enemies want to glory over God, and David wants God to be glorified. That is why he is taking sin so seriously. People who take their sin seriously love the glory of God. 
Number two, David is concerned with the promises of God as well. He does not want the righteous to stumble, which God promised they wouldn't. And the righteous person is not the one who is sinless, but when he sees sin in his own life, he runs to the cross. Let me say that again. The righteous person is not the one who is sinless, but the righteous person, when he sins, he runs to the cross for atonement, for cleansing, and for hope, and he does not deny God's name. That's essentially what David did, and that's why he's a man after God's own heart. Righteous people also confess their sins openly and honestly and seek to make them right through the gospel. That is good and pleasing. And then in verse 18, this is the capstone, isn't it, of the whole passage. Verse 18, the psalmist confesses his sins again. In so doing, he is still struggling with guilt and its sin and and its consequences, but he did it while clinging to the Lord for assurance. Through that sacrificial system, he was looking forward to the promised Redeemer who covers all sin through his atonement. So he runs to the Father in a final appeal, then in verses 21 and 22, with a prayer for reconciliation. He calls on God three times in three different ways, addressing him personally as my God in different ways. David knows he cannot save himself. He is helpless. That's what a righteous person is. They are totally dependent on Christ. He knows he cannot save himself. He's completely dependent on God. And folks, is this how you generally deal with your sin? Do you realize that as you, when you sin, you're totally helpless and you need Christ? Do you come to terms with the full weight of what you've done? And secondly, when you sin, does God discipline you? If you are walking in sin here at Pine Grove, like living in sin, And if you are getting away with that, I would also be nervous. God disciplines those that he loves. And when you sin, are you being disciplined for it? Do you get mad at God? Do you recoil or hide? Or do you run to Christ? Do you run to Christ? God is good. God is gracious. He does not give us what we do deserve. Right? What do each and every single one of us actually deserve? I think I heard one person maybe say it. What do we actually deserve? Death? Hell? Right? He does not give us what we do deserve either. What don't we deserve? We don't deserve God's presence. That's heaven. Right relationship with him. Starts now in this life. That's heaven here on earth. It's through the church. It's through worship now, walking with God now in a small way. But one day in glory, there will be no more sin, no more sorrow, no more suffering, and final salvation and glorification. We look forward to that day, but we're not there yet. Folks, Psalm 38, this is the Christian life. And it all comes down to, do we deal with our sin biblically by owning up to it, not shirking it, going through the pain of suffering under God's hand of discipline, and do we run to God, knowing his kindness and his goodness to us, that he's our father, and he disciplines us as sons and daughters. He is good and faithful and gracious. And finally, like David, are we concerned with the glory of God? Are you concerned with the glory of God and his honor? So two things 
Number one, some of you may be here today and have never repented, ever, of your sins. Maybe you think you're a good person. Maybe you think that your good works will outweigh your bad works. That's a false teaching. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. One sin is enough to totally cause a rift between you and God. And there is only one mediator between God and man, and that's the man Christ Jesus, who atones for our sins. Through Jesus Christ alone and his death, burial, and resurrection, do we have a right relationship with God our Father. And if you haven't ever fallen on your face before God and cried out to him and said, I'm a sinner, I can do nothing to save myself, Jesus save me. If you've never done that, in whatever words you use, come to know the justification that is yours through Jesus Christ, find an elder or pastor today, and come to know God. Come to know God. John 3.16, God loved the world and gave his son. You need Christ. You don't need Mary. You don't need to pray to the saints. There is only one mediator, Jesus Christ, our prophet, priest, and king, and he's head of this church. Come to know Christ. If you have come to know Christ, but say have been battling certain sins for years, just can't kick it, maybe your wife doesn't know it, your husband doesn't know it, your children doesn't know it, your pastors certainly don't know about it. Simply confess. There's such freedom in just admitting it, owning up to it. Confess before Christ. I have a problem. I can't lick this. I'm, I feel trapped in this. Cry out to God to free you from that. Jesus breaks chains. He sets the prisoners free. He makes the blind eyes see. Jesus is all-powerful. Run to Christ. Run to Christ. Battle your sin. Put it to death through the strength of Christ, through the gospel. And for those of you who, who are living well in this rhythm of daily putting to death your sin, keeping those short accounts with God, help the weaker brothers. Don't look down on them. Cry with them. Weep with them if they come to you. Walk beside one another in this church and lift up the weak. Right? By the grace of God, that's us too. Right? So we ought not look down on others struggling. Knowing each and every one of our own struggles should cause us all with great humility to look upon others with deep compassion that have maybe fallen or have succumbed to sin. So I pray that we as a church deal with indwelling sin well together in grace and walk with each other in proper sanctification through the word and through the gospel. So let's ask for God's help to do this. And then we'll sing together. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word, for the truth of your word, for the gift of ongoing repentance in this life. We are sheep and we wander and we thank you for our shepherd that chases us down, corrects us, brings us back time and time again. We are so prone to wander. And so, Father, I pray that we as a people will walk with Christ in this way through confessing often our sins, being sensitive to those things, and then just crying out to God being consumed with who you are, that you rescue us, you free us, you have given us 
all things pertaining to life and godliness. We thank you for the saints that we have one another to be unified with and to confess our sins one another with. And so I pray for grace that we would practice that well as a church, that those that are stronger will be very compassionate and loving and kind and confidential with those that are weaker, that we'll have open doors and open hearts and open scriptures with one another to disciple one another well in this true biblical way. So give us grace, the freedom and humility to be honest before your face, to bear our hearts openly with one another, and help us to fight our sin to the extent that your word calls for, because it is a battle and it's a war. So we thank you for salvation that is ours through Jesus Christ, for the finished work of the cross, for the gospel, for the power through Jesus Christ in the church, in the gospel. We ask for the Holy Spirit to convict us if we're not, that if we're not being disciplined, that we would turn our face towards you. And so, Father, we give you thanks for your word that has so deeply cut us today. We thank you for your wounds, but we thank you most of all that through Christ's wounds we are healed completely. It's in his name we ask these things. Amen.